This is Shack Talk, presented by Eskimo Ice Fishing Gear and hosted by Kyle Agri and Anthony Kleinwachter. Turn up your speakers, grab your gear, and hit the ice with us as we talk ice fishing. Come on in, grab a bucket. We are talking ice fishing. Kyle Agri and Anthony Kleinwachter, we are your hosts, and this is Shack Talk Ice Fishing Podcast. Welcome to this edition of Shack Talk. And Anthony, happy new year. It is January 1st today as we release this edition, this episode of Shack Talk. Welcome to 2021. Let's put 2020 in the rearview mirror. Looking forward, 2021. Uh, got plenty of ice out there, lots of fishing to be had. I'm kind of ready to forget about 2020. Amen. I tell you what, there's a lot in this past year that we're ready to throw in the trash. On the positive side, though, I think we'd all agree here that 2020, although through all of its challenges, it brought a lot of people into or back to the outdoors, which is a really great thing. And it's been a fun thing for us this year on the the podcast to be able to share information and talk really from the ground up, the fundamentals of ice fishing all the way up to the advanced stuff. And and I know there's a lot of folks listening that, that maybe weren't ice fishing a year ago or two years ago, and that's a really good thing. So I'm looking forward to 2021 as much as you are. And I am looking forward to talking to our first guest. We have a Mr. Blake Tollefson here of Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. Blake, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I'm so excited to, to hear what you have to say and just some of the insight you have. We're talking about a species-specific segment here to, to kick off the podcast in this episode. We're going to focus in on crappies. Blake, I, I'm just going to jump right in. Tell us what really kicked off your passion and your fire for chasing crappies through the ice, and maybe it's year-round. Yeah, so I, I do chase crappies year-round. I think I'm kind of unique in that perspective. Um, a lot of guys, they focus on the, the toothier critters and throughout the summer months, and then in the wintertime, it's panfish. For me in particular, I kind of came into this this crappie game later in life. I grew up as a walleye fisherman. I grew up in northern Minnesota. So uh, fishing, you know, Red Lake, Lake of the Woods, Winnipegosh, that was kind of the stuff that I did. Uh, about seven years ago, I moved to Wisconsin. and the walleye fishing in this neck of the woods is very mediocre. So I kind of gravitated towards something that, uh, you know, there was a lot more of, and I found that there's a lot more quality in this area than, than there is a some other species. So for folks who may not be familiar with Chippewa Falls, just geographically, where about are you located in the state of Wisconsin? So West central Wisconsin, uh, if you know where Eau Claire is uh, about 20 miles north of there. Excellent. 20 miles north of Eau Claire. And so you started fishing crappies, right? And and you've been doing this for years. You've been chasing crappies and, and you are chasing them year round. Give us kind of the 101, the kind of the foundational footprint of what these fish do biologically or, or behaviorally that kind of gets you in sync with where they might be found and what they're doing at any time of the year. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously I think everybody, when you think of crappies, springtime uh, is probably the most common common time that people target them. You know, they're in the shallows doing their thing. Um, after that point, I feel like once we transition into that summer period, they just kind of get left alone. Um, in all reality, those fish didn't really move all that far from where they were in the spring. Um, they might've moved, you know, a hundred yards out, you know, maybe closer to the nearest weed line after that point. Um, or, you know, they kind of stay in that area throughout the entire summer. And, as we transition to that fall time period, you're going to start to find them in some of those areas that you think uh, more winter oriented. 
So, you know, some of that deep wood structure, things like cribs, we have a ton of that in Wisconsin. I know in Minnesota and some of the other states, they don't have cribs. Um, a lot of lake associations here, they actually are able to put this man-made structure in there. So that's a huge area for holding these fish throughout the fall and then into the winter. Blake, just um, before we jump any further, there might be some of our listeners who are not familiar with that term. Just what is a what is a crib when we talk about crappie fishing? And yeah, it's just, just kind of what what is it? So a crib is essentially like a man-made structure. Basically what they're taking is uh, big chunks of logs and they're kind of, you know, setting them up like Lincoln logs and then they're filling them with brush and other sorts of things. And typically they'll drop them through during the late ice period. Uh, I know a few times I've seen like, you know, late March where people are dragging those out on the ice and they'll just let them kind of fall through. A little secret is that's a great time to go mark where those are at. So you can have them for that next season early spring before those fish transition into the shallows and then throughout the fall and winter, those things usually hold fish pretty consistently. Other than marking them, you know, by yourself, do they have those on some of the maps? Are those available for people to find some of those cribs? Uh, some of the bigger lakes they are. Um, I'm, I'm right here by Lake Wasota, which is one of the bigger lakes in Wisconsin. And there's been some different maps done throughout the years that actually mark the locations of these cribs. But a lot of times the best way to find them is just get out and do some side imaging. That's it. There's a lot more than they, they put on the maps. And, you know, sometimes when they, you know, mark these on the maps, they just don't, they don't stick around for forever. Obviously they're going to break down and you got to find new ones. And as you go across looking through the lake, you know, when you're side imaging, what time of year are you, you know, you kind of doing that all throughout the summer or in the fall or what do you, when are you trying to find those things and find where those fish are hanging out? Yep. Basically throughout the entire year is when I'm looking for those cribs. Um, obviously during certain times of the year, those, you know, certain cribs might hold bigger populations of crappies. So like I mentioned in that early spring period, um, kind of or that late winter period, I've noticed that a lot of the cribs over here will hold lots of fish. And then basically once you get towards that fall period, again, those cribs will hold a lot of fish. Uh, summertime occasionally, uh, but I feel like at least in this neck of the woods, a lot more of the fish relate to, uh, to weed lines and stuff during the summer months. And then in those, uh, early spring, fall and winter time, that's when you can find those fish on, on the cribs. Great information. So, uh, target that structure, target the, the patterns of, of where they're located at different times of the year. You know, in, in my mind, with my experience with crappies, I, I think of, I think of that springtime, when they're on their beds, they're up shallow. You can almost sight fish them. I think about that summer, you know, those those warm summer months. They're on that deep weed line. And I think about wintertime too. And and a lot of times they're out in the in the deep basin. Does that yep. hold true? I mean, is that just where the most fish are, or or can you find and catch those crappies really in any of those locations any time of the year? It really depends on the lake. So there, they, you know, a lot of the lakes that I fish, um, at least in this neck of the woods, are kind of in that 200-acre class. Um, a lot of them are these, you know, relatively shallow. They have a small basin. Um, some of those lakes, the only place you're going to find fish is in the basin during the winter months. Obviously, it's nicer to be able to catch them in shallow. In my opinion, it's more fun when you can catch them shallow. You don't have to worry about some of those issues that, you know, we can touch on like barotrauma where you're reeling up fish from too deep. For the most part, a lot of these lakes, that is the only place you're going to find fish in the wintertime. There certainly are, you know, like the crib bites, like I mentioned, where there's structure that actually holds those fish, or there is the weed line bites. Um, but that's typically an earlier pattern and then a later pattern. 
uh, basically when there's green vegetation and when that vegetation actually has life. Yeah. Is there a certain kind of vegetation that you're targeting? I know myself in the past, you know, any lakes that have really good cabbage seems like that really holds the crappies versus other types of weeds. Yeah. Uh, I would say cabbage is probably the number one during the summertime here. I think you can find them in ever, I mean, any type of, of vegetation, but in the winter months, it's, it's gotta be some green vegetation. Um, like you mentioned that cabbage, sometimes coontail, those seem to be kind of the better, better types of weeds for actually holding crappies in particular. I think that's another good thing too, to not to interrupt you, Kyle, but marking some of that cabbage in the summertime. I know I've done that in the past. I mean, you talked about marking cribs and things, but you know, finding yep. those weed beds is obviously a little bit harder in the wintertime. Yes. Yep. Significantly harder. Um, one thing that definitely helps out is uh, using an underwater camera because you know, there might be weeds there, uh, but they might be dead. So, you know, being able to actually drop a camera down and see what's going on below the ice is a huge, huge help for finding some of those shallower spots, especially. Here we are, we're, we're just January 1st, right, as this podcast is released. What have you found so far in the lakes you've been fishing, Blake, this year um, since, since you've been able to get on the ice? And are you still finding green weed growth or are you moving out into that basin already? Uh, over here in this area, uh, we've had basically no snow on the ice up until very recently. So most of our, our weeds are still pretty green. Like I said, though, not all, not all lakes have fish in the shallow water. So some of the stuff that I've been fishing that might have green weeds has zero fish. For whatever reason, those crappies have already pushed out to that deeper water. And, you know, you got to spend your time out in the basin looking for them. But, uh, yeah, I would expect here soon, now that we have some snow on the ice, that uh, those weeds will certainly be dying off and more fish will be pushing out to that deeper water. Now, as we take a look at, you know, pushing out into that deeper water, looking at a basin, how do you go about trying to, I mean, obviously there's some new technology out there that makes basin fishing a little bit more fun, but how do you go about breaking down, trying to find those fish out in the basin? Yeah, so for me, um, obviously having a good map is is super helpful. If you can figure out exactly what's going on in that basin, that's a big, a big advantage. Um, and one thing I kind of want to bring back to those summer months is spending the time on some of these bodies of water, actually mapping out these lakes. And as we all know, it doesn't matter what, you know, company or brand you use. There's not that many maps that are hundred percent accurate for these lakes. So spending the time out there and actually mapping out on a basin, there's, you know, there might be these little features that hold fish that you don't see on the, the standard map that you have. So for me, <clears throat> having that good map is a big advantage. Once I get out there, what I'm kind of looking for is something different. Um, if there's a point that dumps into that basin, uh, if there's a super steep break, that's probably going to be the first place I'm going to start. If there, there's nothing, nothing to it, it's extremely featureless. I'm going to start smack dab in the middle and then work my way out to the edge. Basically, what I like to do is drill a grid pattern. It seems like a lot of people will just, you know, drill a line and that's it. Um, I like to start every outing with 30 to 40, 50 holes, depending on the size of the basin. That way, if those fish are moving around, I can continue to follow them around without having to stop and drill more holes. Blake, when you're when you're looking for the things you, you mentioned, right, a point that dumps into a basin, uh, a steep break, Guys who t are tuned into walleyes, they're looking for bottom substance transitions, right? The substrate transitions. Yep. For, does that matter for a crappie or are they are they actually the physical structure itself is going to kind of control where they move? Nope, that can definitely play an impact. Um, and that's another thing during the open water season where you can kind of do some pre-planning. 
obviously when you with your sonar you can find those you know hard to soft bottom transitions and mark those points i mean typically a lot of the crappies around here are, are focusing on those really mucky basins so that's going to be your softer bottom areas but those transition spots can still hold fish pretty consistently so what what is it about the soft bottom that those crappies like? Is that a food? Is that is that where their food is located? Is that just a a, a comfortable environment for them? Yep, for uh, for a lot of them, that's their food. Uh, and most of the lakes around here, uh, if you stick it out until dark and you stay throughout the night, your electronics are going to be completely covered with little microscopic bugs, basically making it impossible to fish. And that's what a lot of these fish are actually eating is all those little microorganisms that are coming out of the mud. I think that's a great point. And, you know, being able to, you know, find where those fish are relating to that mud and that mud bottom, you know, what they're eating um, is something that, you know, I think for most people that target crappies, you know, a lot of guys getting off of work, let's go set up in the shack. We're out in the, you know, the basin, it's dark. The fish are starting to become more active. I mean, that's kind of the, the working man's bite. Yeah, for sure. Blake, when you're, when you're targeting crappies, Give us, just share a little bit of your insight or your personal philosophy. Like what's too small to keep? What's good size for eating? What's a trophy where you're not going to, you're going to let it go unless it's going on your wall, right? What's kind of your, your frame of reference on those? So for me, it's, it's really lake dependent in this area in particular. Um, and most of Minnesota, I would consider a 10 to 12 inch crappie and eater, or maybe a nine and a half inch to a 12 inch crappie and eater. Anything over that is going back. Those fish are special. Um, I think people people really underestimate how special a uh, 13-inch crappie is. You know, until people start measuring every fish they catch, they don't realize how rare a 13-inch crappie actually is in, in most parts of the Midwest. Obviously, you go to Ottertail County, you go to the Bemidji area, There's they have a lot of freaks. Most parts of the Midwest don't, don't necessarily have that. <clears throat> and then kind of that trophy caliber, I think, is anything above 15 inches. And you mentioned a little bit earlier, and I, I, I'm glad you did, you know, talking a little bit about that barotrauma when you're fishing in the basin. Maybe explain that to people and kind of what, what depth range do you see that really affecting the fish? Yeah, so for me in particular, um, I would say anything over 20 feet. Uh, basically, you can start to get that barotrauma. And basically what happens is you're killing those fish. Um, it might not seem like it's anything. It, it might just seem like all oh, that fish release just fine. But if you look closely at the, the capillaries inside of a crappie's mouth, you can see how they all start to burst when those fish get pulled out of that deeper water. And there's been lots of studies done. And I, I think more times than not, those fish aren't surviving. Even if it swam off fine, uh, I don't think it necessarily means it's going to survive. So if you're going to be fishing over some of those, you know, 20 to 25 foot depths, plan to keep the fish. Obviously if those fish are, suspended higher in the water column you don't necessarily have to worry about that but if you're fishing a 40-foot basin and those fish are 30 to 40 feet down those fish are likely going to die if you reel them up from that depth too quickly so that poses a real question and a real kind of uh, quandary for ice anglers and that is how do i selective harvest if i'm fishing in 35 feet of water and, and for you, what, what would that mean? Would you move to a different location and find different fish to target for that day? Yes, that's a hundred percent. That's uh, I have been on plenty of bites where you, you, you've tried to do that, but you can't, I mean, you're, you end up with a bunch of five, six inch crappies and you keep reeling those five, six inch crappies up from that depth. You're going to 
that's your future that you're killing essentially. So it's the, the, the wise thing to do is to, to move on and, and target some other fish. It's not always an easy thing to do, especially when you, you see a graph loaded full of fish. Uh, that's not, not a fun thing to, to leave, but you got to kind of think about the future there. It's, the, it's not the fun thing to do, but it's the responsible thing. 100%. Yep. All right. So now we've kind of targeted where these fish are. What, what's your kind of go-to setup for targeting these fish? So you can kind of classify, I guess, when, you, when you're thinking rods, you can classify them into two different categories for the majority of basin fishing, crappie fishing in general. That's like a spring bobber or a power noodle. I personally opt towards a power noodle. I, I really like power noodle style rods. Uh, they, they work well with the, the lures that I fish and kind of the way that I fish. I typically will pair those up with an inline reel. I think that inlines have a, a significant advantage when it comes to panfish in particular. Um, you don't have a jig just sitting down there spinning 20 feet below the ice. Um, anybody who's ever watched their bait with an underwater camera knows exactly what I'm talking about. You get that line twist. Having an inline reel can help eliminate that. When it comes to bait selection, I personally am 100% plastics when it comes to fishing for crappies through the ice. I don't care if other people want to use wax rings and spikes. I know they work, but I think you can get the job done with artificials and it's a, it feels a little bit more rewarding kind of at the end of the day when you have caught a handful of fish on artificial baits. Yeah, it's definitely a confidence thing. I know for myself too, you know, once you've chosen to use plastics and you're kind of going down that route, you know, once you start to build that confidence, I mean, I think it really does, you know, for me, there's a lot of times I'll go pan fishing and I won't even buy wax worms or spikes or anything. I'll just go out with plastics. And, you know, once you've kind of figured out, you know, how to work the bait. And you know, I think that's something that I picked up from a few different people is, you know, take that bait that you have, take your plastic and, you know, put it in a cup of water, put it in a bowl and just kind of work it. And you'll actually see, you know, kind of how it works. You're imitating those bugs and different microorganisms under the water and it is. It's a confidence thing, and I've you know probably yeah, saved myself yeah. some money and a lot of headache not trying to keep waxworms alive. Hundred percent. Yeah, it really is a confidence thing. Um, if you you know you've gone out and you tried plastics and not had success, you, you, you might have tried it for a little bit, and while it didn't work, you went back, put on your waxworm, and you gave up. The best thing to do is just leave the live bait at home. Um, don't bring minnows. Don't bring waxworms. Don't bring spikes. Just go out there with plastics and just force yourself to catch fish with plastics because you will. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You can convince fish to bite with plastics very easily once you have some confidence in it. And when you're using or selecting plastics, is there a certain size, profile, color, you know, whether they're scented, unscented, what are your, what's your kind of go-to? So for me, go-to is I look for, I mean, really small stuff. Stuff kind of in that one inch class is, is pretty good for crappies. And I look at more natural colors in particular Obviously, chartreuses and pinks and whatever other weird color have success on certain days. But 99% of the time, I'm using red or black and white, I guess, as well. One of those three colors is what's tied on for me almost 100% of the time. So here's a question I have. When you're, you're describing fishing with plastics, a lot of us live in areas and, and fish in states where two lines are legal. Uh, heck, in North Dakota, th four lines are legal, right? But Minnesota, Wisconsin, I think it's a two-line maximum for ice fishing. Do you do you fish two lines when you're fishing plastics and try and concentrate on both of them? Do you just concentrate on one? Do you have a dead stick? Kind of what's your what's your thought on that? For me in particular, I'm going to use that that extra line I have in Wisconsin. It's 
three through the ice. Minnesota, it's two. Um, for me, I'm going to use those as actually kind of predator rigs, essentially. I'm going to throw a tip up out or something else. Um, a lot of this fishing that we're doing for crappies, it requires you to move, 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 move. Um, so you can't just set a dead stick down net next to you. You're drilling lots of holes and you're trying to stay on top of the fish. So you can really only manage one line at a time. And that's where, you know, it, it's kind of a bonus fish then. You might get a nice walleye or a bass or a pike through the ice by throwing out a tip up or, you know, an iFish Pro is kind of set up. That's perfect. And, and I tend to agree with you there. When you are fishing active and you're, you're moving, truly focusing on one rod and one lure and one presentation makes you a better angler with that one, that one lure in the water. Yeah, 100%. I mean, and I know myself personally too, I might be fishing one rod, but I've got two or three others that I've got set up, whether that's a tungsten or a jig or a small jigging bait. I mean, are you kind of the same way as that? Yes. Yep. So I'm typically running three rods at any time. Um, I run a, a Markham lithium shuttle. So it's got the two rod holders in the back. And so kind of my, the three that I take with me are a, a smaller tungsten or lead jig with a plastic. So something like that three millimeter glass. And then I'll take something a little bit heavier, something in that four to five millimeter class with the plastic. And then basically the other one is something big and obnoxious, like a small rattle bait or a jigging style bait, something to call in those fish from a distance. There's times where that's the only thing they're going to eat. Those rattle baits, the small ones are pretty, they're pretty effective on the bigger yeah. crappies. There's no doubt they about are. it. Yeah, yeah that's I a can, great selection. My five biggest crappies have all come on on a, a small rattle bait so it's definitely one of those ones to keep in your back pocket if you're targeting bigger fish well let's just share with our listeners a little bit about you you brought it up what is your biggest personal best crappie 15 and three quarters that's definitely a fish to hang your hat on that's a beautiful crappie yeah that's a that's a pretty big one for wisconsin i i haven't seen too many more bigger than that personally um that was a day, I, probably the best crappie fishing day I've ever had, where we had, uh, I can't even tell you how many fish, over 14 and 15. It was just uh, just an unbelievable day. One of those days where I should have kept a few to mount, but I didn't. One more question for me. I, I'm Part of the ice fishing range does have a real closely related species. That's the white crappie. So what we've been talking about today really is the, the black crappie, correct? If, if we want to get correct. down into the, the scientific details of it. Do you ever fish for white crappie through the ice? Is that something that you ever have uh, opportunities to pursue? Uh, the only time that it, that it comes into play is when you're fishing in, uh, at least in this area, is you're fishing river systems or, you know, kind of those like backwater areas. But all of our natural lakes, I've never personally seen a white crappie. You know, we have some some small oxbow lakes, you know, things that were cut off from the Chippewa River and things that I fished that do have white crappies in them, but none of the natural lakes. How about you, Kyle? You've ever fished white crappies or gotten into them on through the ice? Um, you know, back in, in kind of where the part of the world that I grew up in, south central Minnesota, uh, Minnesota River, uh, some of the reservoirs there, Lacoparle, uh, they do have white crappie down there. And uh, I've caught, you know, I've caught my share of them there. And uh, they also have black crappie. So you get, you kind of a lot of times get a mix of both of them, um, depending on the part of the, the river or the lake that you're fishing. But, you know, primarily my I've, I've been um, fishing black crappies, I'd say, 90, 98% of the time. 
that's really fun, you know, getting after the mix of fish and getting after, you know, whether they're black crappies, white crappies. I know those white crappies, the first one that I ever caught came up, you know, and their, their mouth is significantly bigger than a, than a black crappie. And is, you know, I thought I had a giant black crappie on, so I was pretty excited, but. <laughs> Blake, what's your favorite lake to fish? Crappies oh. or not favorite lake to fish. Um, that's a tough call. Um, I, I don't know if I can give the name, but I, I really enjoy fishing tiny lakes. Like there's a, if you look on a map within an hour of where I live, there's a hundred different lakes that are under 200 acres. You'd stay close to home rather than travel to a, to a destination. If you could only pick one lake to fish. Yeah, I, I do like Mille Lacs. Um, okay. It's not necessarily for crappie fishing, but I, I have spent a lot of time in Mille Lacs. I grew up about an hour from there. I, I try to go back there a few times a year. So that's, that's definitely one of my favorite bodies of water. Uh, that's great. Um, any destinations or what do you kind of got up your sleeve coming up here in the rest of the ice season as you kind of progress anything on the, on the radar for you? Um, well, this year's a little bit different for me. I'm having my first child here, so I'm going to be staying much closer to home than before, at least, uh, uh, at least for this winter. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. You're just, you know, waiting on that future fishing buddy, right? Yep, that's for sure. Yeah, no, on a normal year, I probably would have three, four trips planned. You know, usually a couple to uh, northern Minnesota, uh, northern Wisconsin. Uh, last year, I got to go to Winnipeg for the first time. I don't think there'd be much of that happening this year. A lot of that stuff closer to home. No, that's all right. Um, Blake, if anybody has any more questions, I know we've probably missed a, a dozen different topics that we probably could have dug deep into. But um, if anybody has any questions, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Uh, probably Facebook or Instagram, uh, B Tullison fishing on both of those. Perfect. Yeah. And if anybody has any questions, you know, on crappies, you know, reach out to Kyle or myself or Blake, we're more than happy to answer those questions. Um, Blake, really happy to have you on again. I know we probably missed a couple of things, but you know, really, uh, excited to kind of get your insight on the crappies and hopefully we're able to share a few things with the listeners. Um, you know, whether you're an experienced crappie fisherman or uh, new to the sport, um, hopefully we were able to give you a couple things to pick up on. So again, thanks Blake for joining us. Um, if you're listening, stick around, we'll be back with our next segment, uh, shortly right after a quick break. Welcome back to our second segment of the podcast. And uh, in this segment, we're going to dive into a topic that maybe doesn't get a ton of attention, but really seems to be growing slowly in popularity. And it's something that Kyle and myself probably don't do a lot. Um, it's something that I've done a little bit of, and it's, we're going to be talking about spearing and dark house spearing. It's uh, something that, you know, maybe I should spend a little more time doing. I've done it in the past. Kyle, how about you? Well, I'm I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but I've never I've never been spear fishing, I've never been spearing. It's something I'm very interested in though. So I'm really excited to learn more about it here during this segment. Yeah, and I'm hoping that we can, you know, maybe learn myself something and you know the listeners can learn a thing or two. So we wanted to bring in someone that has done it, done it recently and has a little bit more knowledge than maybe the two of us combined. But uh, I'd like to welcome to the podcast Taylor. Taylor, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for joining us to talk a little bit about spearing. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, this is something that I've I've uh, started doing, you know, the past probably, I'd say, about four years ago I started and went into it completely novice, didn't know really much of anything, um, more of just a learn-as-you-go sort of thing. And uh, 
I've learned a lot in those four years. And I can probably say that I've learned more on, on the trips that I've taken where I've been unsuccessful versus successful. Um, a lot of times the harvest really isn't the, the big learning part of the spearing. Um, it's the, sometimes it's the failure, you know, sometimes it's hard for anglers or spear fishermen to admit that. But a lot of times that is, you know, what makes you a little bit better at it is sometimes the failing aspect of it and not always harvesting the fish. So it's uh, it's been a real learning curve and uh, it's something that I just love to do. I think that's great advice. And I mean, for anybody that's gone spearfishing, is interested in spearfishing, I think there's a lot to that and, you know, can take away, you know, kind of the ins and outs of spearfishing and, you know, where to target these fish, where to get into that. And we'll dive into that too. But Taylor, maybe for those that are listening, um, maybe just introduce yourself a little bit, talk about where you're from and, you know, where you where you primarily target some of these fish. Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Southwest Minnesota, Marshall, Minnesota. I currently reside in East Grand Forks, Minnesota, but I do spend a lot of time angling and spearfishing in North Dakota. I also spearfish in Minnesota, but most of these, when I started out spearfishing was in North Dakota, moved there 10 years ago now. So a lot of the, the trial and error was in the North Dakota parts of it. And maybe I should have gone the opposite direction and maybe started spearfishing in the Minnesota area where it was a little bit more challenging. I think I was a little bit spoiled in the North Dakota territories where uh, the fish might be a little bit more abundant, maybe a little bit bigger, you know, days might not be as slow. I'm sort of realizing now that in Minnesota, although there is really good opportunities, the, the fish sometimes can uh, spoil your good days. So uh, I still love to get out in both states. Uh, I, I buy my my spearing uh, license in Minnesota every year. And what some may not know is in North Dakota, you don't technically need a, a spearing license. You just need to register your spear equipment. So that's also a big part of spearing too, is that it's really easy for people to get involved in it. It's not, you know, an application process or filling out paperwork going online, six pages of information. It's very simple for people to get out and do. And it's something that I encourage everybody to, to try out because I've had a blast with it and I've, I've had fun teaching people about it and introducing them to the sport as well. Okay, Taylor. So someone like myself, right? I have, I have zero experience. I'm, I'm familiar being on the ice, you know, but I have zero experience spearing. What do I need to have with me when I go out on the ice that's different from my angling equipment? And maybe just walk through kind of the really beginner because, because that's where I'm at. What do we need and how do we go about getting started? Yeah. Uh, you know, basic, basic tools. Let's, let's hit that first. Um, obviously guys do things differently, but myself, I like to take out an auger, a saw, a chisel and a tongs and obviously a spear. So you could spear the fish. So those are kind of your essentials. Uh, if you can't get a hole in the ice, you're not really going to be able to do much spearing. Um, so, uh, yeah, the biggest thing to me is, you know, I, I cut my, my hole first, use the saw. Uh, you know, I could get a, a little bit more detail, but I'm going to keep it kind of vague, I guess, to not get long-winded here. But what I initially started doing is, the, is a four-by-three. Sometimes if I get a little aggressive, I'll go a five-by-three uh, with the auger. Then I cut each hole to hole to cut that hole. If I'm dealing with thin ice, I'm going to slide that sheet of ice underneath the ice. If I'm dealing with a thicker chunk of ice, I might talk about extracting that ice, which is with the tongs. So, 
you know, th there's different ways to do it to get set up right away, but the essentials are definitely an auger, a saw. Some guys do it with a chainsaw. I like to use just a regular hand saw. It's a, it's a bifold saw, which it's just a pin that holds it in. And it's, it's about a three foot shaft. I believe it's a Nils. And I bought that just, you know, I picked that up from a Shields, but that, you know, that gets your whole cut. After that, you're going to want to either take a ladle or what I did was I fashioned a grain shovel where I drilled some holes in it and that kind of acts as a giant, like a ladle or a, a scoop, you know, for a traditional hole, but you've got a giant ladle that takes a lot of that ice out of the hole. Um, after that, you're, you're talking about just getting a shack over it, whether it's a permanent or a portable. Uh, a lot of my spearing I do out of a portable shack. Uh, you could do either or. Um, I know traditionally a lot of guys do it with a hard sided shack, but now the advancements with hub shacks are you're able to get yourself pretty dark. So I've, I'm able to stay pretty mobile and just use a, a hub shack. Um, after, after that hub shack gets over the top, I'll put a decoy down. Uh, I've got, you know, 20, 25 different decoys I like to use depending on what water quality is, if it's either stained or clear water uh, and we could go, you know, down the rabbit hole with that one. But, you know, then it's just your basic decoy have your spear ready. And, you know, it gets, it gets pretty uh, generic after that. It's back to the old primal instinct of, of having a decoy there and trying to lure fish in and then throwing a spear at fish. So. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to back you up just a second. Okay. Because just, just going to the, to the very basic, uh, you're talking a three by four or three by five, three feet by four feet or three holes by four holes. Right, like just to get a sense of perspective on how big of a hole you cut in the ice. Yep. So I would actually, I would probably say I am about a, a three by five. So I'll, I will do three holes, uh, let's say, you know, vertically, and then I will do five holes horizontally if I'm looking at the hole. And, you know, I'll leave about six inches in between each hole, and then I'll saw in between each hole all the way through the ice until I get that block broken away from uh, the existing ice there. And then I can extract the ice or either push it underneath the sheet that's that's already there so it's a good size hole i mean we're talking a, a pretty big space to to look into the water yeah uh to me it's you know if i'm going to take the time to go out spearing i'm going to cut a big enough hole where i can see a lot of things I'm, i don't want to be frustrated after i just spent all this time packing stuff into the sled i'm out there i'm spending five six hours now i don't want to you know, I don't want a two foot by two foot hole. I want something that if I see a fish coming through, I have the advantage of, of harvesting that fish and, and really getting the fish that I'm there for. And now you talked a little bit about, you know, ice thickness and whether you're pulling the chunk of ice out or, you know, pushing it under, what's kind of your, your point of ice thickness there. And, you know, maybe touch a little bit on just the safety of, you know, cutting that big of a hole. I know that's another thing that, you know, as a spear fisherman, you kind of have to be mindful of. Right. Um, so I kind of go by the uh, kind of the fisherman's code, I guess, of I don't, I don't like to leave my chunks of ice on the ice. I know some guys do. Um, and I'd, like to, I'd like to hear their thought on that too as well. But um, if I'm cutting a hole, you know, and say I've got, you know, more than 12 inches ice, uh, I'll, I'm probably going to extract that block of ice instead of push it under. Today I was on 10 inches ice. I just, I shoved the sheet under, everything was fine. I don't think it affects fish that are in that area at all. But um, so let's just say I'm extracting the ice. I've got more than 12 inches of ice. I don't like to leave that block of ice on top um, just for pure safety reasons. 
Uh, as soon as I'm done spearing for the day, I like to get that block back in the hole. I still mark my hole, uh, whether it's sticks or lath, um, just to let everyone know that, you know, there was a hole here, there was a guy spearing. I don't want anybody obviously getting hurt. So I would say, you know, 12 inches is probably the point where I'm going to take ice out of the hole. Uh, but that also gets to be a challenge too when you spear in places like Northern Minnesota or Dakotas where you have some years 30 plus inches ice and you're trying to pull a block ice out of 30 inches and it just, you know, you feel like the world's strongest man trying to lift one of those balls to get it out of the hole. But that's part of the adventure too. But I would say, you know, 12 inches it would be the extraction point for me. And you talked a little bit about it too, but you know, what are you primarily targeting? I mean, I, I think most people know, but are you primarily targeting just Northern Pike or there other fish? I mean, I think for most people, it's pretty much Northern Pike, but is there anything else that you target? I'm, I've only targeted uh, Northern Pike. Uh, I haven't got into the, the whitefish game or the soccer game that some other guys do. And then, you know, into the Wisconsin's where they do the sturgeon spearing, which really intrigues me a little bit. I've never done something like that, but I've only done the pike spearing. Uh, I'd love to get down some of those avenues too. Uh, the whitefish looks kind of cool. I've watched some other episodes of the fur hat tour. They've, they did some, some whitefish spearing. That was really cool. Uh, I think they went out and tried to spear a sturgeon as well. And I think maybe like a neighbor speared it and they got that on video too. But, and obviously that's, I think it's not as easy as a lot of guys make that look spearing a sturgeon, but, uh, definitely be a bucket list thing for me. So we were talking a little bit off air before we started here, Taylor. And, you know, I think it'd be a good conversation for, for those who are listening into here as well. And, and that is some of the regulations, right? And so in certain states and certain lakes and certain areas, there are regulations in terms of the size of the, the Northern Pike is what we were talking about. How do you develop a sense of gauging the size of those fish um, down in the water in a, in a view that, for me, I would, I would not, I'm not used to seeing a fish looking down on the top of them. Right. So how you, how do you gauge, uh, uh, the size and whether you can go ahead and, and make that decision to harvest the fish? Yeah, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe that was kind of a blessing, I guess, in, in spearing when I started off in the Dakotas and spearing quite a few fish. So I kind of have been able to gauge a little bit on how big those fish are, you know, in the Dakotas, you deal with a lot of let's just say, you know, Devil's Lake, Pelican Lake area, that, that area, uh, you deal with a lot of what they call cookie cutter pike, which are those 24 to 32 inch pike where you, you kind of know before you throw that spear, how big that pike is going to be. And that's kind of transitioned me into being able to figure out that that fish is, you know, is that under the 20 inch threshold or is that over the, you know, 26 inch, which I can't spear over that. Don't get me wrong. It's still tricky. Uh, the DNR has still implemented the, you get your mistake in the 20 inch to 26 inch range, where if you do happen to, you know, harvest one of those fish that don't meet the requirements that that's kind of your oopsie. And I think at that point you understand a little bit more that I'm familiar with that fish now, you know, I've seen that fish swim through. I speared that fish. That's definitely, I can't spear another one that that size. So at that size. So, you know, it's, you're still not a hundred percent accurate on it. You know, it's like pulling a big walleye out of the water where you're like, ah, oh, that's gotta be 30 inches and it's 28 inches. You know, I mean, we all know that, but it gets a little bit easier the more and more you do it. It's and and that, that old uh, 
fish might look bigger in the water before they get out of the water, I think is really true too. It's uh, I've, I've had that before where I go, Oh, there's no way that one's, you know, 27 inches and you spear it and it's, you know, 22 inches and it's, it's a lot smaller than you thought. So there, there is those instances as well. I mean, I'm assuming it's like hunting, right? I mean, you, you throw that spear into a fish and you are going to harvest that fish if you connect, right? There's no such thing as you don't release these fish. You, once you make that decision, that, that fish is going home. You're going to, you're going to put it on the table. Yeah. It's a, it's a commitment you make, you know, and it's, uh, it's one of those things you just have to live with after you do it. And that's, I kind of touched a little bit there. That's why I, I appreciate, you know, the DNR has implemented that, that slot size where if you do happen to harvest one that is over or under that you get that one kind of oopsie it's uh and what I'm talking about is specifically the they call it the north central zone which is where I spear and that's uh you only get your one oopsie which is in between 20 inches to 26 inches you can spear two over 26 inches and the rest can be under 20 inches which is eight so you get a total of 10 fish to spear they upped that regulation, I believe it was two years ago, maybe three years ago. And I think it was to combat some of the smaller fish that were, uh, were uh, kind of overpopulating some of these lakes around, you know, in the panfish country and, you know, west of the cities. And you start to see a lot of what people call the hammer handle size pike. And I think they're trying to get rid of some of those. The bigger fish are definitely good for the system. They eat a lot of the, you know, the young of the year perch that aren't going to get a lot bigger, the young of the year bluegills. Uh, it just kind of helps balance out fisheries. So I think they've done a good job of upping the, uh, the limit on pike in this area. Cause I think we've seen a, a, a definite abundance of pike around here. So I, I like that you can spear that many and, and it doesn't mean you have to go and spear 10 every day, but it gives you that ability to, you know, say you're somebody that likes to eat fish. That's, I, I like that they've done that. And I think that's probably part of the reason we've maybe seen a little increase in, you know, the popularity of spearing is it's, they did loosen those regulations, you know, before it was only three, you know, now if you're on a lake with a lot of pike, you could, you know, go out and spear, you know, eight to 10 pike in a day and, you know, maybe have a, a really good time. So, okay, now we've talked about what we're targeting, where, where on a lake are you typically targeting these fish and does it, vary between locations you talked about minnesota north dakota kind of how do you how do you break down where you're going to try spearing these fish you know so i have i have starting points which i'd like to tell you are oh yeah go there you'll see fish all day you know it's and then the next you know you go out and you try it and you don't even see a fish all day and that's i think kind of the reality that you deal with in spearing is pike can kind of be nomadic wanderers they uh they sometimes aren't in those same areas day in and day out they, they like to travel new waters. They follow fish, they follow bait, they find new areas to inhabit. It's, it's, uh, it's sometimes trying. I, and it's, I associated a lot to deer hunting. It's why, why isn't that deer here today? You know, why, why aren't those fish here? It's, it's, it can be sometimes frustrating, but uh, to get back at it here, you know, starting points, I would say right now, typically in like Minnesota lakes, you're going to want to get around weed edges. Uh, Tons of fish using weed edges as highways right now, whether it's bluegills, perch, walleye, um, really susceptible to pike. You know, obviously they're pike and bass and walleye, you know, the apex predators. Uh, they're going to be cruising weed lines. Weeds tend to die off here early or uh, mid-season. 
um, look to push shallower. I like to get, you know, a little bit shallower throughout the winter because, you know, you're, you don't have your predominant weeds. You, you need to push up a little bit shallower to find a lot of those fish. Cause that's where a lot of bait fish are going to suck up to now is a lot of that shallower water where weeds are still existing. But then the other thing too is structure, like spearing in the Dakotas. A big thing is roadbeds, your trees, anything, rocks, machinery. I mean, it's, any type of structure that's going to hold some source of food or some source of bait for those fish to kind of, to hold on to as a, as a definite spot where you want to look. Another uh, aspect of that is your clarity. And that's probably the biggest issue in spearing is clarity. It doesn't pay to go sit in 10 feet of water off a roadbed. If you've got mucky water and you can't see two feet past your hole, there could be hundred fish around you. You're not going to see a single one of them because you can't see past two feet in your hole. So it's uh, a lot of times early in the season, what I'm doing is just going to different areas. I'll drill a hole. I'll stick my head on the hole and I'll, I'll look down the hole and I'll stare for, you know, 10 minutes and see if I can see the bottom, see if I can see my jig. I'll, I'll bring a rod with just to see how far I can see down in the water. Um, and that's a, a gauge to see where I can spear in different areas. So that's the biggest thing is, is definitely clarity. And early on in the season, you're going to have a lot of, a lot of brackish water, a lot of, a lot of dirty water where you're getting runoff right before ice freezes up or water that's also been stirred up from wind all summer and fall that hasn't settled down before it froze. So there's a ton of factors in spearing and, you know, and, and clarity too. And you could just go on and on and on and talk about it, but those are some of the the most important things is definitely weed edges, structure, and clarity. I would say are your biggest things when it comes to where you want to set up for spearing. So I understand that that water clarity is going to dictate some of this, Taylor, but how deep is too deep to spear, right? So just given the mechanics of what you're doing, is there a limit in terms of depth of water? Um, you know, I would say once you're getting past the 20 foot range, I think you're getting pretty, pretty wild uh, as far as accuracy as well. I mean, you're, you're getting, you know, you might have lakes where you can see 20 feet down and I'm not one to tell you to not go and try it, but at the same time, I don't know how successful you're going to be trying to spear a pike, you know, 16 feet below you when he's, he's in four foot of water and you're chucking a spear at him and it's taking 10 seconds to get down to him. But you know, maybe that works for you, but I've, I've traditionally tried to stick to, to water, you know, less than 20 feet. I, li- I like the 10 feet and if it's shallower than 10 feet, then that's great. I mean, if you can see fish in five, six foot of water, uh, that's, that's ideal. Cause I mean, the spear isn't leaving your hand for more than three, four feet before it's hitting a fish. And a lot of times you're a lot more accurate. And a lot of time the action is a lot heavier too, because you're getting fish that are a lot more aggressive in shallow water like that. So, you know, I'm not to shy anyone away from, you know, spearing in deeper water, but uh, you know, I think uh, a lot of the more aggressive and active fish can be in shallower, you know, water than like 10, 15 feet. I know we touched a little bit on, you know, the, the equipment, but maybe walk a, a listener through kind of your spear you know, what type of spear do you use? You know, how do you, how do you get that spear out of the water? What do you typically do there? I know in some of the spearing that I've seen done, you know, you talked a little bit about this, the sturgeon spearing, you know, that's a, an, a detractable head that's got a line to it. What kind of setup do you use and what, what would you recommend maybe somebody getting started with? 
So I would, uh, you know, just like in many other things, I'd say probably don't go too over the top just because it might not be something that's, you know, quite up your alley. Uh, it, uh, it's a different type of sport, different atmosphere. Uh, there's a little bit more effort involved. There might be a little bit more trial and error than there is in the regular angling game. So I would tell people to start at a very basic package. Um, there's tons of hubs out there, you know, even buying a used hub or even a new hub. I mean, you're going to be anywhere from a hundred dollars to $300 to a new one or even above that. But there's tons of equipment now, I think where you can get into it and, you know, in a ballpark of maybe three to $500, um, your most expensive pieces are going to be your spears, your shacks. Um, I would say, go to your shields, go to your home of economies, go to your fleet farms, try to find a, a real basic spear just to get started off. Um, I still use a, a spear from shields. It's a, it's just a regular stainless steel spear. It's nothing fancy. Uh, it's, I bought it for $150. I, I hit fish with it. I still harvest fish with it. I haven't sharpened it since the day I bought it. Uh, you know, I, I've thought about upgrading a little bit here and there, but I would say, when it comes to spearing, I don't know if you're going to get more of an advantage for buying the more, you know, the, the bigger and the better of the spears or the bigger and the better of the shacks. I think it's one of those primitive sports where you can get into it at a, at a low cost and be just as effective as the guy next to you. That's got all the expensive stuff. Um, so just your basics, your spear and your shack. And I mean, the, the sky's the limit there from how, uh, how serious you want to take it. If you want to really get into a, a really nice spear, you know, with a wood handle and it's engraved and they're great. I, I, you know, I've browsed many pages looking at getting into something a little bit higher end, but I've still stuck with kind of the basic package and I've had a lot of fun with it. So. I think one of the things that's neat about spearing is that it's such a nostalgic sport right? And, and it goes way back. There's been a long history. You, you incorporate the basics of the spears you just described, but you also have the art, the functional art of the, the decoys. And you said you've got a, a whole collection of decoys. And, and I've seen a lot of those decoys. You, you, people go to decoy shows, right? And they have, they have swap meets and all that stuff. So that's a, a piece of that sport as well. Is that something that you do or, or are you just, I mean, is, is your focus really being on the ice and, and, taking advantage of, of those opportunities. Yeah. My, my focus right now definitely is just kind of being on the ice, but I have, I've seen, you know, at shows uh, guys that have made some pretty incredible decoys and different ideas as well. You know, guys have incorporated woods, plastics, rubbers into their decoys, uh, blades, golf balls, frogs, all, you know, you name it. I mean, it's, there's a wild array of decoys that you can get into. And when you, when you talk about the art of it, I, I like that a lot because you see a lot of those, you know, the old timers that have done it for years and years and they've got the same decoy that's about half bitten off now and teeth marks all over it and hasn't painted it since he used it day one and it still works just as good. So, and I, I think that's the, the beautiful thing about uh, spear and pike too, is that they're so aggressive that some days it feels like, you know, I joke, you could, you can put a pop can down there and just jig that around. And I'm pretty sure the pike would come in just, just due to their nature with how aggressive they are. And that's what makes it so fun is that you're constantly on your toes. Even, even when it's slow, I'm still on my toes about when that next strike could happen. Cause when it happens, it does leave a, a you know, a, that 
kind of like that buck fever you get, you know, where you just get that, your heart's pumping and you're trying to come down from it. And that's, you know, it's, it's, it's so much fun to do, but just to get back on the decoy talking a little bit there, I haven't got too far into it. I'm still pretty novice when it comes to the decoys. I've had a couple handed down to me that are, that are pretty old school. I wish I had them with here. I, I left them at home, unfortunately, but I'd like to, I'd like to go to more of those shows, go to more of the little mom and pop shops all over Minnesota where they've got 10 that are handcrafted, you know, by Harold in the back, back room that he's, you know, that he just poured all his heart and soul into him. And that's what's so cool about it is I think that's the rewarding part is you can tell some of those guys, Hey, I speared a 40 inch pike with this, with this decoy that I bought from you last year. And I think that warms a lot of those guys' hearts too. Definitely it does. I'm sure those connections are huge. Folks, we're talking to Taylor Melanton. He is an Eskimo team member, part of the Fish Addictions TV group. Taylor, um, before we wrap things up, I just got to gotta ask you, what what is the biggest pike that you've speared in, in the time that you've been doing it? I got one last year that was 38 inches. So I don't, I don't have a real big one quite yet. I guess what I would consider real big, I've seen some guys that are you know, speared the the over forties, the forty fours and fives and sixes, and in there, and I, I get pretty jealous when I see those because I I really love to connect with a big one. I think if I do end up getting a big one, I think I'll probably pass on maybe some of the big ones that I see in the future. I'd like to just get one big one just to say I've you know speared a big one, but because you know I I kind of have that mentality with let the big fish go when whether it's a, what species it is, the perch, the bluegills, the crappies, you know, leave the big ones, harvest the smaller ones. I kind of feel the same way about pike as well, but I, I would really like to get one like mm, 40. Uh, if I could get one 42 to 44 somewhere in there, I'd be really happy. So I'm, I'm only right at 38 inches. Uh, not real big quite yet. I'm, I'm more of the, in the harvest zone there. So I'm hoping this year maybe on uh, maybe Devil's Lake or just think about maybe taking a trip up to like the Boundary Waters or something like that. Maybe I could get a big one there. And that would be uh, that would definitely be a bucket list for me. That's pretty awesome. 38 inches is a heck of a respectable pike. There's no doubt about it. And uh, I'd love to see what it was like uh, spearing a 42 to 44 incher. That'd be a blast. Taylor, thank you so much for taking some time to uh, enlighten us and and share a little of your experience and your wisdom when it comes to spearing. If folks want to follow up, if they got more questions, if they're looking for some advice, they're looking for some help, where can they find you? Where can they follow you? Are you on social media? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm on Facebook, uh, Taylor Melantine. Uh, just find the guy that's fishing in the profile picture. I think that's probably me. I, I don't have a, a real generic name. So uh, my Instagram is all lowercase Taylor underscore Melantine. Uh, and I, I just, I'm basically on Facebook and Instagram and I'd love to answer any questions somebody has, uh, just shoot me a message or comment below on anything. Uh, I love to talk spearing and sometimes even when you're in the shack, you can comment away because it's, you know, you got some downtime when it comes to the spearing game. Uh, it's definitely not all hot to trot all the time, but if there's anything I can tell someone, you know, give spearing a try. It's it might seem like a little bit of a challenge, but if you know somebody that spears or you're looking at doing it, I'd, I'd highly suggest it and recommend it. It is, it is a fun time and it's, it's definitely something different. It's a little bit more exciting, I think at times than angling, but 
you know, I'll let people decide. I'll let them go out and, and see how they like it, but I would definitely highly recommend it. Fantastic. Again, Taylor, thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Taylor. Folks, don't go away. We've got one more segment left. We're going to be back with our social fish dancing segment. We're going to talk everything ice fishing with Mr. Jay Siemens right after this short break. And we're back for the final segment of today's Shack Talk Ice Fishing Podcast. This is our social fish dancing segment. And if you haven't had a chance to, to kind of follow along with this, this segment here on previous episodes, with the whole pandemic and with, with our, our whole scenario we've been faced in 2020, a lot of us anglers, a lot of us ice fishing crazy people that just love being out there, part of it is is the social aspect. Part of it's the boat talks and the hunting blind talks and and the ice shack talk. And so this segment, we're not going to really constrain any topics. We're going to just uh, really kind of open it up and, and have a little bit of that fishing talk. And we've got a guest with us today that we're really, really excited about. Mr. Jay Siemens, Thrive Visuals is his uh, company and his brand. He's a very creative person here. He's a communicator. He's an educator. He's he's someone that that entertains along with doing all those things. If you have not seen Jay, you have probably been living under a rock. Um, if if you haven't, if that's a big if, you got to look him up and check out what, uh, some of the work and some of the things that he's doing. Jay, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. This is this is good. This we got is a, we got a blizzard outside right now. This is like this is. Uh, I, I wish you guys were here to experience it. Like, yeah, it's it's full blown Canada right now. Oh, it's full-blown blizzard here, too. Oh, yeah, you guys are getting hit. Oh, yeah, 50 to 60-mile-an-hour winds. The snow drifts are starting to build up a little, so. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I'm not on the lake right now. Winter is here. I mean, it went from 40 degrees two days ago to, you know, supposed to be negative 15, cells, or 15 Fahrenheit here. So, I mean, it's going to be cold. So Yeah, it was, it was a pretty slow freeze. I'm not sure for you guys, but for us, it was very, very slow. And now, all of a sudden, just in the last couple of days, there's trucks on the ice and stuff, and it's it's snapped, and it's wintertime now. Well, I tell you what, for us here, we had our ice augers out. We had our shacks. I mean, we had everything out in mid to late October thinking, you know, here we go, man. This is going to be it. And yeah. Of course, of course it's, it's as you described from there on, I was just like, oh, come on, come on. It's yeah. But I think we're finally there. We're, we're into the full swing of it here or, oh, or yeah. we will be. Absolutely. Jay, just for, for our listeners here, share a little bit about yourself because you do a whole ton of stuff out on YouTube. You do a lot of media work. You do a lot of promotional work, but you hail from, from Kenora, Ontario. You're, you're there in sunset country. I mean, you are, you are in the Mecca of ice fishing and outdoor paradise. Really? (laughs) How how did that all come together? I I can't imagine living in a, in a location that's more perfect for what I do, but I I actually grew up in Southern Manitoba, not too far from you guys. When I was, I don't know, 15, 16, the big trip for me was driving to Grand Forks or to Fargo and to going to uh, either Cabela's or Shields. And that was like a day trip of it. So like, I, I wasn't too far from your stomping grounds. So I grew up in Southern Manitoba and, uh, you know, I'd fish all over, but Tor was always a destination. And especially for ice fishing, it's like, you've got Lake of the Woods and a thousand lakes. When you look on the map, it's just like speckled. Right. So I would go there every weekend and it was always a destination. And then flash forward, you know, 10 years later and I happened to marry a Kenora girl. So it's like, 
well, do I stay in middle of nowhere, southern Manitoba, or do I move to Kenora? And it's like, well, okay, I'll make the sacrifice, Sam, my wife. I'm like, I'll move to I'll move to Lake of the Woods for you if I have to. So that took yeah. all of about two seconds, I imagine. Yeah, it wasn't too much of a sacrifice. No, I mean, I every time I go fishing and come back home, and I'm just like, well, I'm the luckiest guy, not only to be married to her, but to be living in Sunset Country. So walk us through a little bit, Jay, of kind of how you got your start in, you know, obviously there's been a passion for fishing and everything growing up, but how did you get your start in media, you know, ice fishing, content creation, you know, where did that all stem from? Huh. Well, when I was 15 or 16, I started guiding at fishing lodges. I guided at a couple different lodges in, in Manitoba and um, Saskatchewan. And as I went, I, I was like a fish, not the rest of the time. And then also guiding. And it's always just like, okay, you want to take a good fish picture, right? So I think that's kind of where it all started is always trying to take the best fish picture. And that was like, that was even before, I mean, I, I'm, I'm like dating myself, but that was before Facebook was a thing. And it was just like, I want to take a good fish picture, right? It was just, that was the goal every time I went out. And then when I started guiding at these lodges, you'd, you'd see amazing Northern lights and all sorts of wildlife. And it's like, well, I want to take pictures of this stuff. So I think when I was like 18, I got my first Canon DSLR camera and I was like, okay, this is fun. Started taking my photography a little bit further and graduated from high school. Didn't know what I wanted to do. And, uh, I was like, you know what, I'm going to go to photography school. I'm like, even if, even if I don't go into it professionally, it's just, it would be a good degree to have. It was a one-year program I was looking at. Um, and it's a skill that you could take to whatever you're doing. And just, if nothing else, it's a hobby, right? So I, I enrolled in photography school in Winnipeg. I got my textbooks. I got an apartment. I lived about an hour outside of Winnipeg. And uh, so everything was set. I was like, oh, this will be a great way to spend, you know, a year, uh, being out of high school. And, uh, I was, I actually was at Lake of the Woods right before a week before school started. And I was doing one last musky trip with, uh, with a buddy of mine. And I was, I was friends with Aaron Weeb at, at the time. And he, he was like, Oh, can I come out musky fishing with you for the last day? I'm like, sure. So he drove up from Winnipeg and hopped in the boat. And we went musky fishing. And then at the end of the day, he, uh, he pulls out his laptop when we're at the cabin and he's like, I want to show you something. I'm like, okay. And he shows me this pilot episode for, a fishing show that he'd filmed and I was like okay this is cool and it was it was pretty well done Aaron was I was I guess 19 at the time Aaron was 25 ish 26 and he shows me the show I'm like that's sweet man like this is awesome you're gonna crush it he's like okay well I, I want you to I want you to film it and I'm like well I'm, I'm enrolled in school he's like can you drop out and I'm like uh, yeah maybe probably I need to talk to my parents so I, I really didn't have any video experience at the time but I looked up to Aaron and idolized him in, in the fishing world. And we became friends the previous years. And I was just like, I'm going to kick myself if I don't say yes to this. Cause it's just one of those things. It was just like, this is, this is something I need to say yes to photography school. I can always go back to, but this is Aaron. We've asked me to, to film a show with them. I'm like, okay, yeah, I need to say yes. I told my parents, I'm like, okay, I'm uh, I'm going to do this. So like, yeah. Okay. We support you hundred percent. So they, uh, three days before the, the photography college was supposed to start, I, I called the, whatever the, the Dean. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm backing out. And he said, okay, you know, sounds like you have a cool opportunity. So that was kind of the start of me really digging into video. I'd only really dabbled with it before, but that was 2011. And, uh, holy smokes, I was dropping out of school is like one of the best decisions ever made, I think. So that's kind of where it all started. Aaron and I lived in the truck, lived in hotels all over Manitoba for the first, you know, year or two. And, those are like the, the glory days, like all oh, the memories that were made and uh, not knowing what we were doing and uploading videos. And I remember uploading the first video with Aaron and like, I don't know, it got 300 views in the first night and we were just freaking out. We're like, how is there 300 people watching this? This is the coolest thing ever. So I get goosebumps just thinking about that, not knowing 
what it was all going to turn into and the doors would open and stuff. So yeah, that was, that's kind of where it began and then just developed after that and went different ways. And I did more photography and video and got deeper into that. And now Aaron mostly sell films. He doesn't really have a camera on anymore. And uh, we're still, you know, we're still best friends. And now I'm a little more in front of the camera, still doing some stuff behind the camera. So, you know, it's, and it's kudos to you for, for jumping on that opportunity. Cause when opportunity knocks, you got to open the door, right. And it doesn't always knock. And I mean, you're just a perfect example of what happens where you you probably were a little scared to do it, but it's turned out pretty darn well. I've, I think I've tried to uh, convince a couple of people to drop out of school since I'm not sure if their parents are happy with me, but I'm like, I don't know. I, I can always go back to school. That's the thing. So yeah, that was, that was uh, a turning point for sure. So when you, um, when you're doing your work now, Jay, you, you mentioned yeah. that uh, you do some work in front of the camera. You, you also do some filming, but this stuff where folks see you out there, your YouTube, your YouTube videos and, and some yeah. of these things, are they self-filmed? You're, you're filming yourself. Uh, most of the time. Yeah. Like on some projects. So kind of the progression of what things have happened recently is I'm doing more and more, uh, you know, stuff for my own personal YouTube channel. But before I was, I was shooting stuff for clients. So now it's kind of a, a hybrid. So if I can, um, take care of some client work and film a YouTube video at the same time, then it's kind of best of both worlds. Cause, um, you know, sometimes to get to these locations and to have fish involved, like as your, your actors, whatever you want to call them and on all the props, like it would be all that effort to bring that gear out there anyways. Right. So if I'm going to bring all that gear out there, I may as well film a product video for, you know, one of those companies or whatever it might be. So it, it kind of helps to do both of those. So there's times where I'll bring, uh, you know, another videographer along or photographer, but especially now with, uh, the social distancing. Oh, I got it backwards. Social distancing. Did I say fish, fish and sing? I'm yep. going to get it right yet. Was that close? It takes <laughs> practice. Close. Tongue twister. It yeah, takes it's practice. Twister. Yeah, so I mean, especially now, I'm just, I'm by myself or with my wife and, and maybe my one other shooter here and there. So, um, you know, I it's it's pretty easy when you're by yourself um, just to, or when you're self-filming to just on a moment's notice go and shoot a video. And and with the whole YouTube world, it's, it's all very instant. It's not like the TV shows back in the day where you'd film your season and it would go up the next year, right? Now right. it's like, I'll film a video on Tuesday, it'll go up on Wednesday or Thursday, and then I'll go film another one. So it's, I don't really have a schedule anymore. So it's, it's tough to bring somebody else into that. I have people that help me edit, which is a crucial part of making everything work because, you know, for every day fishing, for half a day fishing, it probably takes you a day and a half to edit. It probably, yeah, it takes longer to, to edit than actually the fishing part of it. So everyone sees the video and they're like, Oh, he's fishing all the time. I'm like, Oh man, if you experience the late nights in front of the computer, it's like, it's, it's great. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's all part of the creative process. Right. But it's a lot of, uh, a lot of time staring at a screen. Yeah. Not only the editing, but the, you know, the management, the, you know, communications and everything that goes into running your own business. I mean, that's a lot of work in itself. And I know we touched on it a little bit kind of even before we hopped in the call, but how have you seen, you know, this 2020 pandemic affect, you know, kind of how you've gone about doing things. And, you know, I know we've touched on it in previous podcasts, but are you seeing the same thing with people getting involved with more outdoor activities? Oh man, I've, I've heard a couple different stats, but like I've heard that license sales are just through the roof. Like people are fishing more than ever because it's obviously something you can, you can do right now. But yeah, on the other side, it's like affected my work greatly because I love traveling. I love doing, you know, big week long trips or I, I do a lot of work with Manitoba tourism. And, and now it's just, 
travel isn't a thing right now. I have videos right now that I can't even post because they're partnered with tourism and they can't promote tourism. So it's, it's a very weird deal. Now, now I've just been staying super localized and just fishing within the car area, but been seeing lots of people getting into fishing. And I, I love that because I don't think there's, you can only sit inside and watch so much Netflix and then eventually it's like, okay, I need to go do something. Right. So I think to, to see people get into ice fishing and, and, you know, get excited about something new, I think it's, I think it's great. So that meme a, a couple of months ago, you know, uh, I got to the end of Netflix. I mean, yeah, exactly. that's kind of where we are with 2020. Yeah. I've seen it all and you got to do something new. And, and to your point, I think that's a great silver lining here in, in this whole thing. And you know, that's, it's kind of a good segue, Jay, because you did a series of videos here. What was it a month, six weeks ago? And it, it was all about the how to's and it really was conducive to folks getting into the sport. Can you share with us just a little bit about where that idea came from and, and kind of how it developed? Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's great to, you know, come along in a day of fishing. Like I love making a, a YouTube video when someone can come fishing with me for a day and maybe, maybe see me catch a big fish if the stars align, but it's like people need the how to's as well. The teaching, the teaching is important, even though sometimes it can come off maybe a little bit drier, but it's just like, those are the things that set you up for success. So I'm like, you know what, I'm going to lock myself in my shop for a couple of days and I'm going to try to, you know, break down everything you would need to know because when you and I talk fishing to other people, it might sound like a different language, right? Yeah. When we're talking about flashers and an eight inch flight and they're like, what is this person talking about? Like what's, what is he marking on his, on his flasher? I don't even know what that means. Right. So to just, you know, scale it back. Sometimes I think as anglers, we, we talk in our own language and I, I try to, yeah, just to try to make a guide. And it's, it's not necessarily a viral video or the type of thing that'll ever go viral, but it's the type of resource that people, can you know visit when they're getting into it right if they have any sort of questions and i tried to break it down for someone getting into it because there's so many things that i wish i knew when i was getting into it that you know unless you go fishing with someone you don't we don't always we don't all have an uncle or a grandpa or whoever that is going to take us and teach us all that stuff you know so and i yeah i think that's a great point i mean in the time that we're in right now i mean you might not have that opportunity to go out fishing with someone else or learn from someone so having those tools and resources just that much more important and i know we've talked about how much is available for people online and being able to get those resources yeah it was great and it very easily understood very easily very well explained and and you, you didn't go overboard but you gave the foundation of what people need and i think there's going to be a lot of folks who can relate to that and benefit from it here as we get further into the ice season yeah, and I try to just keep it as generic as possible. I mean, you can see what gear I'm using and all the gears linked below, but I'm just like, I'm not here to sell a product. I just want it to be like, these are the styles. I'm like, you can see what I like to use. But um, pe people just, I think, appreciate, you know, that genuine answers to their questions, right? So, I mean. Well, and let's face it. Now, I've been a lot, uh, in the ice fishing world and, and the outdoors long enough to know that what I grew up with it can't even hold a candle to what's available today. And yeah. so in, in, in your reference to product, there's tons of great products out there. Yeah. Tons of great brands, a lot of great, we're fortunate to have the equipment we have to be able to yeah. go out and do what we do. And and so to just really focus on what are the basics is a great thing. Have, have there been other pandemic effects, Jay, that you've seen in, in your area? Oh man, I mean, being on Lake of the Woods, there was no Americans there. You, yeah, not, none of your kind were there. The lodges were, the lodges are just getting crushed. Like some of the drive-to lodges were okay, but any fly-in lodges were just, I don't know. It's, it's scary to what, what could happen if there's a second season of these no flying camps, because a lot of these Canadian flying camps rely on 
American clientele. Everything's in American dollars. And yeah, it's, it'll be, it'll be tough. I, I feel because I've filmed so much of these different lodges and met so many lodge owners and they become friends of mine. So, you know, I, I've been able to make it work in, in Kenora here, but um, you know, it's, everyone's affected a little bit differently. Right. So. It's been tough. There, there is that side of it. You know, you look at the silver linings, but there's a reality too. And it's a, it's kind of cold, stark reality that the economics of fishing and tourism and whatnot have been, I mean, they haven't been just been reduced. I mean, they've been pretty much cut right off. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting because you hear these drive to lodges that had their best season ever. And then the fly lodges just didn't even open their doors. So it's, it's very contrasting, even in the same industry. So I can imagine. I mean, I look at myself and, and the number of trips we'd make up to, to Winnipeg and, and that yeah. area and all the, what, what I miss. I mean, I, obviously I miss the fishing, right? I think, I think yeah. anybody can relate to that, but I miss just connecting with all the friends and the people we have. Oh there. yeah. It yeah. seems like there's this big wall and, and thank goodness for social media and all this stuff we have, but exactly. still. Yeah. Not, yeah, to, be, not to be selfish, but we'd like to get up there too. <laughs> you want some greenbacks, of course. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is the longest I've gone to like without fishing Manitoba, and I'd be on Lake Winnipeg right now. But uh, I mean, technically, I could still go. But I just thought, you know, what? There's there's enough lakes for me to explore around here, so it's hanging hanging tight for now, and we'll see we'll see what happens. Just Jay, I got a, a couple of questions because you you did yeah. you know I mean you've done how often do you do videos? Do you have a schedule, or is it just whenever things happen? Man, yeah, it's it's. I don't have a schedule at all. No, no. And it, it consumes me. You, YouTube's a dangerous thing too, because it's just, it's when, when I used to shoot more client work, it was like specific deadlines. It's like, okay, I'm shooting this on the 10th. It needs to be delivered by the 17th. That's all I need to know. But YouTube, there's nobody telling me, okay, you need to do one video a month. You need to do this and this and that. It's like, I want to post as many videos as possible. You're doing a good job of it. Well, thank you. No, and it's, 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 it's one of those things that I'm sure I will hit a burnout point. I don't want to hit that burnout point, but People, I don't know. It's it's an interesting because as a as much as I am a photographer to fisherman, I also like the marketing side of it. So I'm always looking at the analytics and just the science behind it. And I will tell you, when we have ice up here, and I can post an ice fishing video before there's ice in Minnesota, it it just blows up because you guys are all like waiting for ice and just you know we're all jonesing for it. We're all exactly. waiting. Exactly. So it's, it's, there's a science behind it as well. So now it's just like, okay, November, December, those are like really important months, you know, to, to try to put out lots of content. By the time March comes around, people are already thinking about open water, even though there's still good fishable ice. So it's, it's an interesting, um, there's a science behind it as well. But I mean, I think, uh, I think I'm trying to do, you know, one to three videos a week and Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, because you don't see the ones where I blank out. You know, it's there's there's always those trips where things just don't work out or, yeah. That's, so that's the reality it. of it, right? It's fishy. Yeah. Do you find it hard? I know Kyle, myself, and others that I've worked with, you know, do you find it hard to balance being able to put in all the effort into filming or all the effort into fishing? Or, you know, for me, I know that's hard. Like, when I'm fishing, I want to be fishing. And when I'm filming, I want to be filming. But when you try to combine the two do you ever have any kind of issues trying to work out the details there? Oh man. Uh, I think like a good example of that is when I was filming more with Aaron Weave and he, he would always be like, are you ready? Are you hundred percent ready? Like, can I take a cast? He's like, I do not want to take a cast and set the hook on a fish and you not to be filming. Like not, not in a, not in a, any sort of attitude. He was just like so focused on getting that shot that he would rather not catch the fish. Right. And then that was like, it was, it was impressive. So for me, it's just like, like that, 
camera has to be rolling. It just has to be, there has to be a backup camera. There has to be, has to be something. So it's a trade-off. Like I'm going to make sure there's always one camera rolling. My inner cinematographer would love, you know, three cameras and drone footage and every video and slow motion, all that stuff. But it's a balance. If you want to do three videos a week, you can't make it too fancy either. So there's, it's, it's always a balance and it's always an inner battle because part of me just wants to strap a GoPro on my chest and let it roll for 12 hours. But that's maybe not what someone else wants to watch too. So it's like, I don't know. There, there's, there's a, a balance of, you know, cinematography versus the fish stuff. Cause catching a fish off camera kind of sucks when you're spending five days trying to catch a big fish and you catch it when the camera's not rolling. So that would, yeah, yeah that would be a little disheartening. I got to imagine. Yeah. And you do a well, lot with your wife and, and she's in a lot of your videos. And, and I like that, that effect because I think more, uh, Females in the sport is a good thing. We're seeing more of them being involved. And uh, I really appreciate that. Is that something that uh, you had to kind of talk her into or growing up in Kenora, was that just a natural thing? Well, she liked fishing. She just didn't like appreciate a camera being shoved in her face when we went fishing. And and I don't really go fishing without a camera too much. Just with, I don't know, maybe it's my personality. Maybe it's just what I've, would have trained myself, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it always adds a little extra stress or tension when you're trying to film it too. Cause you're just monitoring different things. And at the start, I think that was a little overwhelming, but she has taken it in stride and it's, it's super cool. Cause people are messaging her now and be like, Hey Sam, what, what do you recommend for a suit? You know, what do you have any recommendations on this or that? And people message me and they're like, man, like my wife watches the videos and my girlfriend watches the videos when Sam's in them now. And it's like, that's, that's super cool if she can make it more relatable too, because she's not as diehard as me. I understand that she gets it too. Like a six, a six hour fishing day is perfect for Sam while I might want to do 12 hour day. And I have learned that there's a balance there because you know, you want it to be enjoyable for both of us. And I think just when people can watch her and you know, her, maybe her struggles too or whatever and her realizations when she's fishing, like it's, it's relatable and you know, so I, I've enjoyed it. I think she's enjoyed it. We have some, one of my favorite parts is just the memories that we have on film with the two of us and just being able to relive her catching her first muskie or her catching a big walleye through the ice. Like those, uh, those are pretty cool memories to have on film beyond, you know, if, if other people can gain something out of seeing her in the videos as well. So, and, and she's just a lot of fun to be with me talking me talking to myself to a camera in a shack. I know you're talking about shack talk. I have shack talk by myself all the time. And I, I'm sure I sound like a crazy person to the people near me. They're like, what is this guy doing? But yeah, having someone to talk to makes the videos much more uh, just easier to film and more enjoyable for me. Obviously I'd rather have her alone all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I think you hit on a good point there too. And I, I know Kyle could probably agree with me with this, but you know, being able to relive those memories through video, I know when I first started fishing, everything was, you know, photography and I'm sure, you know, you mentioned that's how you got your start, but being able to go back and rewatch a fish catch exactly. or the emotion, yeah. you really relive that where you don't get that same type of feeling when you're, you know, looking at a picture as you do rewatching a video. So I guess that'd be some good advice to anybody listening is, you know, pick up a camera. You don't have to be a professional. It's going to be anything's better than nothing. Yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't need to be like when I started taking fishing videos, it wasn't what the plan wasn't to make a YouTube channel or to try to turn into a living. It was, I just want to watch this back. You know, a picture can only tell so much of the story and I have just an awful memory. So like to be able to watch these videos, to be able to show these to my kids, like, and even if you pull your phone out, the, the videos you can take with your phones these days is just, 
amazing, right? So yeah, probably know. better than the cameras we had 10 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 4K. Man, iPhones are ridiculous. Yeah. So you did you did a, a recent video on ice camping. Is that has that been around? Is that a is that a Canadian thing? Or or is that just something you've seen come around lately? You know what? It's just I've done it. I I, I probably I probably did it 10 years ago already, but it's just uh I I think the reason that I, I I think people appreciate it too is just it's it's such a weird concept, especially for people further to, people down south already can't understand how we're on the ice and driving vehicles on the ice, but when you're sleeping on the ice, it's just it's everything so different, right? And and the steps you take to get to that point, and it's it's uh yeah, it's just super unique. And for me to be able to fish all night and to have lines in the water all night is a pretty it's a pretty cool deal when you hear the bells ring and you don't know what might be like, I don't know. Of course, a lot of places, the walleye stop biting when the, when the sun goes down, but all of a sudden you get this freak walleye that swims by two in the morning. It's like, you don't really know. Cause you never, you never fish in the middle of the night unless you're sleeping there. Otherwise right. you're probably maybe fish an hour into the dark and pack up. So I don't know. I like it. I'm gonna do more of it this year too, especially with like accommodations being shut down or limited. It's uh, you know, I always like to showcase different lodging to stay at, but when you don't have those options, I mean, sleeping on the ice is pretty sweet and, you never can get to the lake early enough for the morning bite. So to actually be set up camping and being fishing an hour and a half before dark, it's like you actually take advantage of that. It's easy to, it's easy to fish the sunset bite, but the morning bite, at least for me, is a little tougher to cash in on sometimes. Well, you made it look pretty comfortable inside that portable shack. <laughs> it was good. Thermal shacks are game changers. Yeah. Like, Oh man. The warmth, the lack of condensation, all of the above. I mean, they all play into that picture. So Yeah. Jay, we, we've asked every one of our social fish and guests a couple of questions here as we wrap things up. So I'm going to throw a couple at you and, and just give me your first thoughts or, or ideas here. But uh, favorite body of water to fish? Ooh, Lake of the Woods. That didn't take long. That was that was a quick response. It's right yeah. out your back door. So okay. There's everything on Lake of the Woods. I mean, it's, uh, it's accessible and you can fish clear water. You can fish dirty water. You can catch pretty much everything in it. Yeah, it's got a special place in my heart. What about favorite species to target? Uh, this is probably a bit random, but tarpon, I think, saltwater. Tarpon are just out of this world. But it, freshwater, maybe a little more relatable, would be muskies. Muskies, muskies just have so much personality. And, uh, yeah, I, I like I like the challenge. How about through the ice? Uh, I love big crappies. Oh, I love big crappies through the ice. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but th- that's probably probably one of the one of the top, yeah. It's hard to argue with crappies when you got them stacked on the screen and one's yeah. just racing up one after another. And- uh, I might say bluegills though. If we, I mean, we just don't have any sunfish here. We we don't have bluegills, so may, maybe my answer would be different if I uh, if I was in your neck of the woods. But uh, crappies is pretty relatable. I can yeah. agree with that. They're both darn tough to beat. That's for sure. Uh, what's it? What's your favorite or not favorite? But what's a, a bucket list place that you've not ice fished that you want to ice fish? Oh man. Oh, that's a good question. I've I haven't ice fished on the Great Lakes at all. I'd like to do some ice fishing on the Great Lakes, and I'm not sure where that would be, but I know that people catch some huge walleyes on Erie when it's frozen. I know, I mean, Superior can have some lake trout fishing when when the ice freezes nicely. So I haven't done too much. I've done like a little bit in in Milwaukee on Lake Michigan, but that's that's pretty much it. Yeah. All right, I got one for you too. Favorite piece of gear that you got this year. Oh, I got live scope for ice fishing and it was, yeah, it's pretty, pretty wild. 
it's it's kind of insane to haul around on the ice and kind of excessive, but it it makes ice fishing it makes ice fishing better. It's it's just you know you learn it's a learning tool and and to just to see how fish interact and see how spooky fish are beneath the ice. And I have no connection to Garmin. I just like it was it was tough to shell out the money. Don't get me wrong, but to see to see what the fish do is it was a it was pretty wild. Yeah, I was able to at least convince my wife that I was able to put it on the boat come nice. come open water. So, you know, got a little bit of that trade off there. So well, now now I'm trying to convince Sam that I need a second one because I need one on the back of the tiller and then one on the trolling motor too. And you know, pretty soon you could afford a second boat with the cost. But I think I think it's good that other brands are getting into it because I think it's going to drop the price on everything. But oh man, competition's yeah. always good. Yeah, I appreciate how you phrase that as you need it, right? Yeah, isn't yeah, that how exactly. we do everything as anglers? Right? We we need that. Yeah, exactly. It makes for better videos. We need it. It's a business expense. Exactly. Well, I think that's kind of going to wrap up our segment. Jay, we really appreciate you joining us. Um, Thank you, guys. That was great. Yeah, if anybody has any questions or feedback for you, what's the best way for them to reach you? And if you haven't yet, you know, make sure to check out Jay's videos on YouTube, social media, and all of that. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Yeah, best best way to reach out is probably shoot me a DM on Instagram. And uh, I, I try my best to respond to all of them, uh, whether it be, you know, fishing questions, photography questions. And uh, yeah, I love to, I love to connect. It's, it's so cool. And you put a video online and you see the comments and stuff. And, you know, I, sometimes it just, you see numbers and you don't actually get it connect. So I'm, I, I love connecting with, uh, with you guys whenever I can. So. Yeah. Well, thanks Jay. We really appreciate it and love connecting and we're looking forward to seeing the rest of your content uh, coming out this winter and look forward to you and wish you the best of luck as we roll into the rest of this ice season. And I'm sure we'll, we'll talk again, but got to thank Eskimo and uh, everyone that sponsors the podcast to be able to give us this opportunity. And if anybody has any questions, reach out to Jay, Kyle, myself, we're always happy to answer those questions and always open to feedback to help, you know, make this podcast better so that we can, give you guys what you want to hear. So until next time, be safe, distance socially, and get out fishing.